I like to think of it as kind of a remnant of the pre-lapsarian like relationship with the cosmos mm. that that our the kinship we're able to have with dogs is somehow you know reminiscent of the harmony that that we were you know made to have with creation wow. and and anticipates uh, perhaps uh, 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 the new creation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the very first episode of the Crab and the Cross podcast, a podcast featuring conversations between Catholics about the sublime and the ridiculous, the divine and the human and everything in between. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and I'm so excited that you decided to join me. I'm really pumped to share with you the conversations I've been having over the past few months. I talk to priests and theologians, I talk to lay people, I talk to sisters, men, women, people who lean a little left, people who lean a little right. Um, and my goal is really to have a, a real diversity of experience and thought on this podcast. I think the Catholic media world has become very factionalized, and I think that is somewhat antithetical to the universality of the faith. Um, so I hope that this will be a place where you can come and learn something and also have some of your ideas challenged. If you like what you hear, I think you know the drill. Subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, like, comment, share, review, all that good stuff. If you don't like what you hear, you can write a mean-spirited note and you can go outside and you can throw it into the abyss and I'm sure it will be delivered where it belongs. Stick around to the end of the episode for a little explanation as to where the name for the podcast comes from. And now, my conversation with Father Christian Robb. Father Christian Robb is a Benedictine monk from St. Meinrad's Abbey in southern Indiana. He received his doctorate in sacred theology in 2015 from the Catholic University of America. He is the author of the book, Understanding the Religious Priesthood, History, Theology, and Controversy, he has been a monk for almost 20 years and is in his 13th year of priesthood. Currently, he serves as an associate professor of sacramental theology at St. Meinrad Seminary and an associate pastor of St. Joseph's Parish. Father Christian, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here. So in preparation for our interview, I was uh, listening to some Taylor Swift this afternoon to really try to get into your headspace. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I have to admit, she is like actually growing on me. Um, okay. I think I had to kind of live some life, you know, go through some heartbreaks to like really connect with Taylor Swift. And so, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe have like a little, a little, a little Swifty fandom going on. Well, I, uh, so I didn't really know anything about Taylor Swift um, or I knew very little. And then um, it's actually during the COVID you know, shutdowns, lockdowns, I was kind of had more time on my hands than usual. So I was trying to learn about things in the culture that <laughs> I had sort of missed yeah. since I joined the monastery. And so I watched the whole of Parks and Rec and I listened to nice. Taylor Swift. Nice. <laughs> COVID things that I sort of used to catch up on the culture. 
Um, and I did, I really started to get, I liked a lot of her music. So she's a very good uh, songwriter in my opinion. Yeah, I think like when, so she came out when I was in high school and mm -hmm. I think for me, like I had to be different. I, I couldn't listen to what all the other girls were listening to. Um, yeah. And so she wasn't like quite edgy enough for me. Sure. Um, and I think now, you know, flash forward 10, 15 years later, like that's not a major concern of mine. Yeah. Um, but also I think her music has, has matured. I mean, she, yeah, I think her, her lyrics have matured, her sound has matured. Um, and so I think the, the latter Taylor Swift stuff is what I connect yeah. with. Yeah, well, I think, um, I know I know a lot of people find her last couple albums, uh, Folklore and Lover, to be kind of more redemptive of her, mm. um, that she um, kind of grew up a lot and she, she's matured as a person and I mean, I mean, she's not a, uh, you know, I don't, we don't want to make too much of any celebrity, but right. uh, she, she um, is, it's just matured as a person that's coming out in her, in her music. And, um, and I, so I, I used to be in bands and write songs and uh, did so for, for a long time. And um so somebody just who's written a lot of songs. Yeah. I'm, I was kind of blown away by her ability to, to write things that connected with so many people. Um, and she's not my generation. So I sure. it's not like I was ex looking for somebody to kind of be the mirror of my soul and Taylor Swift, but it's um, you know, the, what you said about, about kind of needing to be different. That's interesting. Cause I, I know when I, I definitely would have been sort of from the same school, um, wanting to be a little different, wanting something a little, um, not that everybody else was into, but, but actually what kind of floors me about her is her ability to connect with so many people. And, um, that's the more I think about it, I realize like what a rare gift or talent that is mm, um yeah. there are very few artists who are able sort of to hit that nerve in so many people and so it's kind of that's what sort of um makes me kind of in awe of yeah. a talent there um her i think she's kind of on the level with people like michael jackson or paul mccartney who it's just like the amount of people that they are able to connect with is just on a whole different level for most musicians, you know, pop musicians. So. Right. Right. No, I mean, for sure. I mean, she's not, she's not a niche interest at all, but yeah. um, you know, maybe even though she started off in kind of the, the teen pop genre, like she's, yeah. she, the, her fans have grown up with her. And yeah. I mean, I know people who are, you know, I don't know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, who like Taylor Swift. I know a lot of guys who like Taylor Swift, who yeah. some of them are reluctant to admit it. I, I think <laughs> for a long time, my perception was that, yeah, she's just like a, a girl, like a female, a female centric musician. I don't know. Sometimes I think yeah. it's harder for female artists to appeal to males, unless it's in like a very superficial way. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, like yeah. Oh, just sort of the hot pop star. But I think like, sure. yeah, she has a lot of like genuine male fans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, 
I just, I mean, her, the other, the other thing about her besides kind of this, I think emotional accessibility that is like what she's connecting with so many people because somehow she's that relatable to so many people. And that that's very rare talent. And then the other thing that kind of killed, like, I think is really neat about her is you see her challenging herself as a songwriter because she tries these different genres yeah, um, and kind of masters them. So, you know, she has sort of stuff that sounds like indie music, like on the folklore album, she has sort of pop country, she has rock. Uh, and that, in that way, she reminds me of Paul McCartney, who mm, yeah. is somebody who is kind of like, whatever whatever musical game is out there to be played i i'm i've got kind of enough confidence to go in it and and do it really well and uh again that's like a rare talent yeah yeah and she's she's good at reinventing herself i think you know for a long time growing up i always hated it when my favorite bands would like try to do something different you know <laughs> like i remember like when uh like I, I love like punk rock, you know, going up. Yeah. I remember like when Green Day came out with American Idiot, and I was like, "What is this? Like, yeah. like go back to like the Dookie, like just sort of like you know, <laughs> ch- chill out, kind yeah. of." And then they're trying to do something artistic, and I'm like, "No, no, no, you're not, you're not that kind of artist." But like now I realize, okay, well they're probably in their early twenties when they're first yeah. they and they're like in their thirties, and they're like, "We're not like doofy teenagers anymore. We need." you know something more sophisticated yeah i think if people creative people artists they have to they really do have to keep things interesting for themselves and um so i i respect artists you know when they do that well this is an interesting place to start our conversation (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um well no i mean i think music music is culture Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways i mean especially Mm. if you think about modern culture like music music and movies are essentially what our, our culture is. You know, I try to think about like when I've, like, I mean, I haven't traveled too extensively, but I try yeah. to think about what sets a culture apart. You know, it's, it's cuisine, it's music. Um, and when I try to encapsulate, like what is American culture? I mean, I don't think we really have a cuisine. The language is English, which we didn't invent. Um, you know, we're, we're not old enough to have like traditional dance or whatever. So I think like, our pop music and, and our movies are like our main hmm. exports of culture. Well, they're certainly the things that expo- get exported. Yeah. Um, but some of those wells are really deep. Like I think particularly with the musical wells, American, American musical wells of blues, of country, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Tim Pan Alley, um, those are really, I think, deep folk, deep cultural wells. Um, so probably, you know, if you want to understand America, um, musicology would be one of the, probably the best ways to, to try to appreciate it. Right. Understand, I think, is a, not the most helpful word. Hmm. Appre- appreciate American culture through its music. Right. Do you think that there are themes that American music has that you don't see as expressed in like, say, you know, music from Great Britain or or other Mm -hmm. English speaking countries? Wow. That is really interesting. Yeah. I don't know the answer, but I'm just 
like, you know, it just kind of popped in my head, like, um, I, you know, cause you kind of think about like, what are the American ideals? And I forget who yeah. I was talking to, but you know, a lot of our, our pop industry is, is like out in LA, like out in California. And I think West coast is very different from East coast. And some have made the case that like people on the West coast, they're all descendants of people who we're going out there for gold, you know? <laughs> uh, so they kind of have different, in a way of different values than like us oh, East Coasters, wow. you know, we're a little more like down to earth, you know, less, oh, less wow. dreams, but I don't, I don't know, I, you know, maybe a little less religious. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, 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 I haven't really thematically, like I haven't tried to compare American music so much to other things um I would yeah I would probably have to sit down and really really ponder that before I before I give an answer um I do know that I that like blues music and and country music and bluegrass music um there's there are a lot of Christian elements in those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's it's often very Protestant, you know, uh, Protestant themes. So so there's, um, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of them are expressive of the experience of salvation. Yeah. Um, but in country music, I think there's, I mean, good country music. I'm not yes. <laughs> uh, um, in good country music. I I think you find a kind of sacramentality, even mm. even though a lot of it's Protestant and it's it's uh, kind of philosophical source. There is a a, a sacramentality still, um, maybe despite itself. I don't know right. uh, where where you see people uh, contemplating uh, the everyday and uh and a certain sacred uh sense of everyday experiences and um you know in a johnny cash album you have songs about love next to songs about crime next to songs about god and i always like something like that almost more than listen to like a praise and worship yes absolutely because it's it's really expressive of life and life includes all of that stuff. And then we find God in it as opposed to sort of some kind of, I've got my album of praise and worship music and that's sort of all it's about, but then it's somehow disconnected from the rest of life, you know? No, I, I agree. I think there's something almost dishonest about a lot of Christian, you know, mm. I don't know, pop music, Christian rock music in a sense that it does, it only expresses the I love you, God. I praise you, God. I thank oh, yeah. you, God. And it's like, if you go to the Psalms, I mean, you have those. And then you have the like, yeah. you know, my, my one companion is darkness. My tears have become <laughs> my bread. And yeah. it's like, come on, like you have to yeah. have like the darkness too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's on point. Um, the, the struggle of um, that there sometimes is in our <laughs> spiritual life. I, that was a beagle. Yeah. Hey, all right. <laughs> Yeah, it's take it's take it's take your dog to work day, but um, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the struggle that can be in our spiritual life sometimes does not get captured in contemporary Christian music. Yeah, and whereas in if you listen to the blues, if you listen to country, it's there. You know, for sure. Yeah, 
So, so you mentioned like this, the Protestant roots of our country. This, this brings mm -hmm. up something I want to ask you about. Um, you know, one of the, I don't know if America can take credit for the genre of rock. I think a lot of it comes mm -hmm. from the UK, but there, there seems to be this undercurrent, especially in Christian circles that like rock and roll is the devil's music. And there's something kind of inherently, uh, I don't know, perverse about it. And I'm wondering, do you think that comes from like the puritanical roots of, of Christianity in America? Or do you think there's actually some merit to that, that like Christians need to be a little bit suspicious of, you know, that genre of music or maybe other genres of music? Wow, great question. Um, so I think the answer is yes. <laughs> uh to all to all of it okay right? like including the beginning part like yeah is is that a kind of pure puritanical reaction yeah i think so i think um the the you know the beginnings of rock and roll uh were were really adult music played by african-americans um and uh played in bars with a lot of humor and a lot of sexual innuendo. Mm. And uh, it got taken out of that context uh, and played for white teenagers. Uh, and there was a lot of nervousness about the adult themes, about the sexual innuendo, about even the language of, you know, rock and roll was a euphemism for sex. So, mm. um, oh, wow. I didn't but, know that actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So there was a kind of a lot of fear and, and, and resistance to that um, kind of the, those part that, that, you know, and, and um, so I think there was a kind of puritanical reactiveness to early rock and roll. Um, but, and, and, and I, I, I think that that was, um, probably, you know, short-sighted and, and narrow-visioned. Um, and if you listen to a lot of 50s rock and roll, it's, it's pretty chaste, yeah. even, by our, even by standards then. Um, you know, there, there were guys just, you know, the Beatles, I want to hold your hand. I mean, there's something, this is a kind <laughs> if of... If only that were the lyrics Right, right, today. right. It's a kind of chaste, romantic um wooing kind of music um there rock and roll is a very big umbrella sure. and so um some of it some of that puritanical reactiveness was was overreaction probably some of it was an appropriate reaction for music that really wasn't meant for kids um you know kind of being brought to kids um and probably you know um some of that early rock and roll was a little too boundary pushing where, you know, they were taking tropes from gospel music and, and, and certain like uh, things that would have been sung, you know, uh, for God and kind of turning it into uh, sexualized music. Mm -hmm. And so you had those aspects too. So I, I can understand those early reactions to rock and roll um, but I, like I said, I think it's always been a big umbrella and there are other pieces. When you get into the 60s, rock, rock and roll becomes rock, uh, which is really, in my opinion, 
that shift in language is a shift where it's no longer about dance music. Yeah. It's, it's about, and it's about, about punching people in a mosh. Well, exactly. Well, no, <laughs> in the sixties, it was about a message. Yeah. Yeah. And a oh, lot yeah, of it sure. was very anti-institutional. And so you have the Beatles and you have Bob Dylan and you have Paul Simon, you have a lot of people pushing back against institutions. And I think for a lot of artists pushing back against institutions in the sixties, one of those institutions would have been the church and religion. And so there's, um, there's an element there that, you know, doesn't jibe well with, with Christianity, um, you know, especially for Catholicism where, you know, tradition matters. Um, right. So I think that, you know, it's, that's another kind of legit Catholic critique of rock. Ratzinger, you know, in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, he kind of takes issue with the way rock concerts sometimes um, almost become uh, idolatrous yeah. um, in their kind of energy. And yeah, no, I mean, I can definitely attest to that. And I always felt a little bit uneasy about that aspect because I like... Yeah. I like live music and I like yeah. rock music. Um, and there's just a sense of like, you know, you're in this crowd, you're putting your hands up, you're screaming, you're cheering. Yeah. Um, it really feels like worship in a sense, especially if you compare it to like a charismatic kind of worship service, yeah, yeah. Like the same gestures and everything. And, yeah. you know, the, the, um, a lot of times the, the lead singer or someone on stage is, is giving you things to call out back and forth. So you kind of have this like, right you know, dialectic going yeah. and yeah there is something uncomfortable about that yeah it can be and um i think particularly for me the theme the themes and content of the music itself you know govern just how i'm going to feel about participating you know for sure yeah. so so if the music is become particularly focused on you know, the opposites of truth, beauty, and goodness, um, ugliness and, and, and mm -hmm. evil and, um, and falsity, uh, then, then especially it feels bad. But I do think that there are, you know, artists um, and, and pieces of music that in rock that truly are reflective of the true good and the beautiful. And so, you know, letting that sort of fill up our hearts uh, doesn't seem, doesn't feel like a problem to me. No, I mean, I think some of it too is like the crowd mentality and then whatever people's expectations are. I mean, I yeah. think one of the last concerts I went to was the Avit Brothers and I love the Avit yeah. Brothers and I think their music is representative of good, true and beautiful for sure. Yeah. And it also has all that kind of Christ hauntedness stuff that we yeah. talked about earlier. Yeah. But it was actually really disappointing to go to their concert because just the way the crowd was behaving, you yeah. know, um, yeah. where everyone's standing up, everyone's screaming, you know, people yeah. are drunkenly singing along and I, yeah. it's kind of annoying in a sense, you know, people yeah, are it's, hot it and... starts to feel like that kind of revelry, you know, exactly. from, from the book of Exodus. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Right. Um, well, you brought up the spirit of the liturgy and I think one of the big debates 
nowadays between people who you know are very passionate about liturgy is liturgical music um and i think you know there's definitely the like the music that kind of became popular after the second vatican council i mean i can my parents have memories of hearing you know bob dylan type songs oh yeah at the mass you know folk mass folk mass sure and you know i mean well, it brings up two questions. One, I mean, I think it, we can probably say it's it's not appropriate to have a, a pop artist, a Bob Dylan song, no matter how deep and, and spiritual it might be. It's probably not the right song at all to have at the bass because it wasn't written to be a worship, a, a song right. of worship. Yeah. But some even go so far as to say like, and anything that is an imitation of that genre at all, like you shouldn't have a folk guitar song at the liturgy. What yeah. do you think about that? Um, uh, I, I'm probably, I don't think that I would go as far as, as some of those critics go. Yeah. Uh, I do agree with the point that, you know, one, I think this is stated in Sacrosanctum Concilium and elsewhere that, you know, that sacred music really should be music that is composed for a liturgical purpose. And so that's the kind of music that we would want to use in our worship services. Um, I am, you know, probably I've, I've traveled a lot, you know, I've traveled a lot throughout the world and I've, I've seen a lot of different styles of music in the mass. Um, in India, in the South Pacific, in Brazil, um, in various neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. I, I'm, I know that there's a kind of school that, that would take a very narrow focus and say, you know, we have to have like, it's sort of Gregorian chant or nothing. And uh, I'm probably not on the same page with that. You know, I, I think there's more room for other things. Um, so, you know, I yeah, think it's, it's possible it's, to have different different kind of styles, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of brings up the question of like what, like what is the liturgy supposed to be? Because on the one hand, I think there's obviously a transcendent aspect to the liturgy. You know, we're sure. like mirroring the worship of God in heaven, and and I like chant because it does create this very otherworldly sense to Mm -hmm. it especially when it's in latin and you can't really translate in your mind like what is being said you sort of feel like you're being transported to another realm so to speak but it's like at the same time when we think about the incarnation it's like god entering into the familiar and to the culture that already exists and and i don't know i mean you know i i don't know to what extent there should be an enculturated liturgy i mean i think you could obviously make the case that well I don't know. I mean, chant, I guess chant evolved out of monastic life. So it wasn't like some pre-existent genre that people were just sort of, you know, doing sacred, like a polyphony sound, like in the streets or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, is the mass supposed to be more transcendent or more like incarnational? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it was Chesterton who said, or it was somebody aping Chesterton who said, you know, the liturgy, um, the, liturgy, the liturgy should feel like home but it should also feel like a foreign prince hmm. and uh, 
and I, I do think that both of those things are are true. Um, it's it, it's kind of the tension we have between the incarnational and the eschatological. It's a tension we have between nature and grace. Um, you know that there are because we're the liturgy and there's an aspect where it's tra- it is transfiguring uh, the things of our lives. You know, with the bread and wine um, are are pretty ordinary things, and they're. Um, and we, we don't put on costumes to go to mass. We, we might put on nice clothes, but right. we're, not, we're not going as something other than ourselves. So there is an aspect where it really is home. Um, but, but probably there should be some things liturgically that remind us that grace is coming from outside and above. And, uh, and so the music, you know, I, the chant has, I mean, I certainly came, I joined a Benedictine monastery and it was partly because of the liturgy and the, the beautiful liturgy, which had a transcendent sense. And it was unlike things that I could experience otherwise, but, um, but, you know, I've been to masses where there was a guitar and I, um, I, I thought it was tastefully done and right. works for me. <laughs> yeah I mean I mean I wonder if to some extent we we make too much of this problem it's like Christ yeah. is present yeah. um and he can show up he, he's he's not limited by whatever our, our instruments yeah. are that we're employing I mean I yeah. obviously there are things that I think can draw more attention I I, I, I there's this um <laughs> I, I won't call this place out too directly, but there's this retreat center that I went to and they have um, a choir there. And so in their chapel, you have all the seats facing each other in like a long row. And then you have the altar in the middle, just like on the same ground level as the seats. And then up against like where your eyes are directed, where there's this yeah. big, beautiful mosaic, there's a stage that's about three feet high off the ground and they have the choir and the band up yeah. there. And it's just... To me, there's something really gross about that because yeah. her attention is just, it, it feels like her performance and, and so, even the way that they perform is very, yeah. I mean, it feels like a performance. It doesn't feel like, a, it feels like we're there to see that. I, I wonder if it's something, you know, less about particular genres than maybe some, it's some, some other attitude that's brought to, I, I could say, yeah, you know, I don't really want to go to a hip hop mass and I don't really want to go to a, uh, 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 a house music mass and I don't want to go I don't want to go to a folk mass and I don't yeah. really want to go to a polka mass <laughs> but um, but you know if you have you ever listened to Mary Lou Williams jazz mass it's unbelievable oh. it is so powerful and so beautiful um, Mary Lou Williams I highly I recommend for people sure. look it up and listen to her um, she has uh, two things she did. One is called the Black Christ of the Andes, and it's a mass that she composed for uh, the Feast of St. Martin de Porres, and it is awesome. Um, you know, meanwhile, you know, we have kind of classical, you know, 18th century classical music composed masses that I think are also pretty lovely. That's not medieval chant, you know. Um, no, true. So, um, and it's really a different genre, um, but it's still quite beautiful. I'm not a musicologist. 
I just, uh, and, and I, I know frankly less about sacred music than I do secular music. Really? But these are, these are some of my, some of my half-baked opinions that I'm trying to offer for your listeners that's, today. That's what people come to the internet for is half-baked yeah, opinions. Half-baked opinions. Um, I, I hesitate to tell to say this, but I'll say it anyway. Um, I have this kind of joke that like, because as a priest and a professor, I have this kind of joke and uh, with my seminarians and I'll say, you know, as a priest, you may have something in the church's teaching that you don't get, you know, or you buck up against and you still have to tell people like what it is and like you, you have to communicate the church's teaching. It's not about your opinion. This is everybody probably has something. And let me tell you what mine is. And, and they all kind of get silent and I don't know what they think I'm going to say. They think I'm probably going to take up some kind of controversial hot button issue. But I, then I say, I buck up against the line in Sacrosanctum Concilium about the organ being the preferred instrument of the liturgy. <laughs> okay. I, I, I can relate to that. Because, okay, I don't mind like a, a kind of, you know, low pipe organ, but yeah, I mean, at, at the shrine, like we were both, you know. In yeah, I wasn't going to say it. I can't, I can't, it's so, I don't, well, I don't know. Sometimes it's so loud it's so, that you can't sing. Yeah. And that you can't hear the other people singing. And unfortunately, it seems like it's more often that way than not when it comes to the organ. Right. Is it, it, it drowns everything out. And so. Um, I really love going to Eastern Rite liturgy um, yeah. and, you know, they just sing everything. And to me, that's the preferred instrument is the human voice. You know, I, I agree. Like, like a chord performed by an acapella, mm-hmm. you know, quartet versus a chord played on the piano, the organ, the guitar. Yeah. It, like, hits you differently like feel it I don't know I don't want to you know too poetic but like you sort of feel it like deep in your soul like as soon as that like first you know chord is hummed yeah 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 absolutely yeah and and no no I mean I know the organ is a a very difficult instrument to play and I like the sort of normal church organ but like some of these like massive you have so many other sounds like going on I don't I don't know I mean yeah sorry yeah, tends, tends to <laughs> dominate the experience right so, um whereas you know uh, just a little guitar not a strummy folk song but a little like taize style guitar background i really can love that yeah. um you know or a piano instead of an organ i can love that in the liturgy yeah so. i think yeah i mean there's there's an art to it i think certain you know, if it's like it's Christmas mass, the closing hymn is Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Like sometimes there is something beautiful about the organ just, you know, laying it on thick and, and you just feel this exuberance. But it's not it's not for every mass or for every part of the mass, maybe. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, before we go, we have to talk about something that maybe is a little more familiar to you. Okay. <laughs> so what is going on with these dogs? Oh, so um, my dog, Lexi, she's a German shepherd. Um, we, she had puppies on June 3rd. 
was was this a planned pregnancy <laughs> no it was uh -oh. not <laughs> <laughs> so i used to say that lexi was really good at poverty and chastity and not very good at obedience <laughs> and now i just say she's still good at poverty <laughs> that's hysterical <laughs> so how many puppies did you have well she had five um we lost one it's not unusual um so one of the puppies uh he passed away after a couple weeks um and then we had four and uh so actually now they've all been homed so oh, I, don't, I don't I don't have any more. I've just been seeing this all over Facebook. And I'm like, has, has Father Christian, like, is he just in the dog breeding business now? No. Like he's not even doing the monk stuff. It's just <laughs> I it was it was really a beautiful, beautiful uh experience. You know, I don't I don't want to do that every year, but it sure. was it was really neat. Um I I love dogs, I've always loved dogs, and Same. Uh, so and the puppies were so cute. They, they were a lot of work, but yeah. it, it was it was pretty awesome to be a part of it. And um, oh my gosh, I mean, I could talk for hours about Lexi's like God given programming. Really? Know? Oh my gosh, it was incredible. Like just just her what it means to be um like a mother. Like her instincts were. I was in awe. Um, it was so cool to watch. She, you know, she, where we had the one puppy that just wasn't doing well. And, you know, she would uh, kind of like push the other ones away, like, and allow that one to nurse by itself because it couldn't compete. Wow. Um, yeah. And I mean, even really from the first moment that the puppies came out, like, they're they're kind of born in these like sacks and she she knew you know that she had to break those sacks yeah and that she had to chew off their umbilical cords she had to um lick them until they started to move um it just she knew how to do everything and it, it was it's just really amazing to kind of watch and um that's interesting because a lot of species, like if there's a, an offspring that's sickly, they just abandon it or yeah. eat it. Sometimes they eat it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, she did actually eventually, um, ab she abandoned it. She, she, oh, she did, uh, because she knew, um, and, uh, and I think too, you know, there's probably some sense there of, well, I, I just say, I like to think that there's some sense of communicable disease. <laughs> That, sure. that, that if that if this puppy's sick it might get the other one sick so what she tried to do is keep keeping them apart yeah you know and yeah uh, and then but eventually um he he just lost his will to live Aww. so <laughs> um so yeah anyway yeah how long have you had lexi i've had lexi for five years okay so just, I mean, you know, being that you're a monk, being that you take a vow of poverty and obedience, uh -huh. like, was there sort of a, a chain of approval to get a dog? Like, how did that kind of work in the, you know, monastic life? Well, um, it's kind of funny. 
there there was an older monk who got Lexi. Um, he was the gardener, and he made the case that he needed a dog to kind of protect the garden and um, keep the deer out. And so uh, he got her, and he was older. And honestly, it was within a year of getting her that he um, basically got too feeble to continue gardening. And I did not want to garden, but I was willing to take over the dog. And so um, that's how I ended up with her. Um, And yeah, I think, you know, not quite the same level as Franciscans, but Benedictines have a, a tradition of, of we're really kind of a rural order. And so, and there's, there's a lot of, you know, farms that are attached to Benedictine life. And um, traditionally there was a lot of animal raising cows and goats and things like that. And, um, you know, so for me, it, it, it kind of fits within that tradition. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah I mean, yeah, sense. it's not like, we're not raising her for food or anything like that, but it's, it's, you know, you're, you're kind of cultivating a part of the earth and, uh, and uh, helping things kind of, you know, reach their talos and, uh, and it's beautiful. So I'm, I'm very happy that I, I have a dog to. Yeah. Does she spend time with like in your sell i don't know if you use that language yeah so um she um i actually recently got assigned to a parish and so she actually has come with me uh to the parish so uh we're living at we're living in a uh in a little hermitage uh uh yeah that's great (laughs) like you and another priest no just me and the dog oh just you and lexi really Yeah, yeah 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 the other priest the pastor lives across the street okay okay that's kind of like me. Like, I mean, I don't live, I don't live in a hermitage, but I live, it's just yeah. me and my dog. Like, well, you, you do know. live in a hermitage. You just don't call it that. Sure. Um, yeah. Lexi's <laughs> name, by the way, is Lexi O. Davina. That's oh her gosh. full name. <laughs> that classic <laughs> monk move. <laughs> well, she, so we got her as a rescue and her name was already Lexi, but oh, we, really? had, we had to change it, you Aww. know, to be more monastic. So right, right, Lexi right. became Lexi O. Davina. Her new name, yeah. you know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. There's like, oh, hey, bud. <laughs> Wait, I have to show you mine. He's sitting here. <laughs> yeah, that's a good boy. This is Milo. Nice. And the great thing about him is he's a permanent puppy. Like he's like three oh. years old, but he's mixed with a dachshund. So he's just like oh, a little thing. Nice. But I don't know. There's something I, I actually want to get your thoughts on this. Like there's something special about dogs. Absolutely. In my opinion. And okay, this is, <laughs> this is deep. Okay. I, I have this, like, it's sort of a joke, but it's sort of serious. I call it theology of the doggy. Yes. Okay? Uh, it's like, all right, God made man in his image and likeness. And I think that man made dog in his, in his image and likeness. And I, and, and, and if you think about it, like, so every dog is, is uh, just a descendant from the gray wolf. Yeah. And there's a sense in which, I mean, we can't get into like divine causality at this time but like there's a sense in which god didn't make the dog like we did because we bred right these wolves to get 
all kinds of breeds that are, you know, as tiny as a a dachshund, as big as a Great Dane, like, I don't know. I, there's a, I, I see in dogs and maybe I'm somewhat anthropomorphizing it, but they seem to have these very human-esque characteristics that I don't see in other well, animals. I think that's awesome. You know who thought about this a lot is C.S. Lewis. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has quite a, like, he doesn't have an extended statement, but yeah. you can find pieces in tons of his writings about his thinking about animals and dogs mm-hmm. in particular. Yeah. And somebody really needs to collect them, like synthesize them into a dissertation. Oh, I'll um, do that. <laughs> yeah, you should. Um, but and my, my, much to my dad's dismay, he'll be like, oh, they'll be like, oh, what's your daughter doing her PhD dissertation on? <laughs> Not going to want to say it. <laughs> no, but it's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, and Lewis actually makes kind of a similar point to what you're saying that, um, like, with the way that grace actually helps us kind of move above our nature um, that dogs like our experience with dogs is we're actually helping them sort of transcend um, like, yes. <laughs> like, like just being these like beasts. Brute, like, yeah, like, like, yeah. 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 Um, and so, I mean, it's not, it's not, I'm sure like a, a strict Thomist would, quibble with a lot of distinctions that I'm not making right. but um but uh but there's an it's like an analogy of it's being an analogy, in a way, analogy you know? that that yeah the way that the way that like God actually kind of stoops down and helps us raise up to him yeah um that there's this long human relationship with the dog that is kind of a stooping down to raise up and um and it gets recapitulated in every dog's you know um, but that the, the dogs can actually be brought to this pretty high level. Right. Um, and, um, and it's really beautiful. And, you know, there, there are, uh, they, they found these tracks of like, like some of the oldest human footprints in the world. Um, and I, I mean, these are, I don't know how many tens of thousands of years old, but they're the oldest preserved like uh, footprints of an erect hominid, you okay, know? Yeah. And there's, there's, there's paw prints right next to them. Oh, wow. And so that, that this companionship between human beings and dogs is really ancient and, okay. um, and beautiful. And I think, so, uh, I like to think of it as kind of a remnant of the prelapsarian like relationship with the cosmos mm. that that our the kinship we're able to have with dogs is somehow you know reminiscent of the harmony that that we were you know made to have with creation wow. and and anticipates That's uh perhaps uh, uh, uh the new creation yeah yeah i mean i also think like i don't know to again to kind of go back to the analogy um you know, I think as humans, we have a hard time understanding how God can just love us unconditionally, like in spite of our faults and, and love us no less, even when we do commit faults. And I think there's an analogy there with the dog, like in the sense that you like, I love my dog. He doesn't do anything. I mean, he, you know, you love them just, are, you love them just because. 
Yeah, it's like I mean, sometimes they're useful. Being. My dog is not useful. Right, right. You just love the goodness. Of, you're affirming the ontological goodness of being right. in your dog, you know? And when people say good boy, right? They say, good boy, good boy, right? That's like a metaphysical statement. It's an ontological statement. Mm. It's, not, it's not really a moral statement. You know, it's good boy. You good boy, good boy. Right. It's really just a, a good, yes. The, I'm affirming the goodness of yeah. your being. Right. And God saw that it was good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Isn't that great? Right. I love and, it. and even like, you know, like I was driving with my dog to work today and he's like kind of freaking out in the car. He's just sort of crying and getting agitated because he doesn't know what's happening, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I, I can tell him all I want, like, it's going to be okay. You know. We're just going to work. I'm not abandoning you. Like everything's fine. I have it under control. And like, he can't comprehend that. And I was just thinking like, sometimes, you know, in prayer, when we're just like begging God for something and he's like, mm-hmm. I can see further ahead than you. It's going to be okay. It's all good. But like, we can't, we can't re- almost can't receive that message in the same way that my dog cannot receive, like, you know, he can't really understand like what's the terminus of, right. of our act. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's insightful. You should write this dissertation. I, I want you to. I think I will read it. Dude, I, well, yeah. And then I can just, I can call it Theology of the Doggy and I can like, you know, yes. irritate like half of the TOB people and the other half will be like all over it. Probably, probably. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I will. I, I, I need to take a breather. I just finished my master's last well, summer. And I'm like, let's, let's, let's not open any, any thick books and write any papers for a while. For a while. But maybe, maybe, I mean, it, it would have to be something that would, I mean, if you think about a dissertation, it has to be something that hasn't been totally done or totally solved. You know, you want something unique and then you also yeah. want something that can hold your interest um, on a personal level. I think it'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, actually, okay. Do, um, do you know Jimmy Aiken, the apologist? Yeah, I don't know him personally, but I've listened to a couple of his podcasts. Okay, yeah, his Mysterious World podcast. Yeah. Yeah, did you listen to the one he did about the dogs? No, I should. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great because he he really does get into the question of like, you know, can dogs go to heaven, whatever. And, you know, he's okay. he's more open than probably most people have been. Um, and he cites, I know he cites like Peter Kraft. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of agnostic on the, you know, do all dogs go to heaven, but I've become like more like I've become more on the side of like I mean God can redeem whatever he wants like if God wants to have dogs in heaven like there's nothing uh I don't know it's not like a blasphemous thought I mean we you know it's not it's not ever gonna be dogmatic but like maybe (laughs) well uh, yeah um I I'm probably hesitant uh to talk about any particular dog being in heaven yeah um, but um but the the you know the the, the type or the but, ta- but when you talk yeah exactly like you know it's a new creation and I, sp- I mean particularly if we're talking about you know earth 2.0 uh right that, new heaven, that, new earth. yeah that that there unless you're just sort of i mean imagining you know big like concrete lifeless um you know uh scenario where the you know the, it's just i don't know the biblical picture, and I realize the Bible is written metaphorically in many ways, but the biblical picture is really lush with yeah, trees and yes, yeah. I don't know, are there animals in the book of Revelation? I'm trying to think. 
Um, well, I don't know, but not, I don't, you know, certainly in the Psalms. Yeah. When, when we look at kind of the Psalms that we particularly think of being eschatological, hmm. there we t- really do talk about all of the cre- creation, blessing the Lord. Right. Oh, right. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, sea creatures uh, yeah. and, and dolphins bless and the that, Lord. Yeah. And book that's book of Daniel. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Psalm 148, I think. Um, so there's this kind of vision of all creation. And I mean, it, it, it also, you know, ties together um, Eden and the end times. And um, I mean, God redeems, he saves, he's, you know, what saving is a salvaging. Um, and so um, it's, it's not a, I think Eve Kangar has this quote, you know, that it's not a taking, you know, it's, he says, it's a marvelous refloating of our earthly vessel, not the transfer of survivors to another ship. And, wow, uh, that's beautiful. yeah. Huh. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's something, there's something to reflect there. Just, I mean, when you think about like, I mean, I think some theologians take a very negative view of, sure. of creation and others take like a more maybe positive and, and integrated yeah. harmonious view. And you can go too far to that spectrum where you almost are like, you know, worshiping nature and that. Yeah, I so. don't want to do that. R- right, right. But it is, it is, I don't know. It's all things will be, you know, all things will be made new. And yeah, that means dogs. I kind of hope there's dinosaurs in heaven too, honestly. <laughs> like, can we, I mean. I love it. Like, just like, why? <laughs> like, I have many questions for God, you know, but one of them yeah. is like, you make these massive creatures and like none of us, they wipe them all out before we get to see them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love the idea of dinosaurs in heaven. That yeah. is great. Like, I let us it. appreciate, I mean, you know, the, you know, the, I want to hang out with the giant sloth. That's what I want to hang sloth. out with. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Why? I mean, have you been and seen like the recreations of the giant sloths? They're amazing. No. Oh, they're they're like the size of small apartment buildings. They're enormous. Oh, yeah. Seriously? Oh, they're so cool. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, go to the um, down to the Smithsonian and yeah. and the, the Natural History Museum. They have these recreated. You know, they're they're. I think they're bigger than the mammoths you know really yeah and they're sloths they're so cool i love giant animals like yeah yeah there's just especially furry ones yeah they're not threatening <laughs> well i do like the saber-toothed tiger though like that oh is yeah amazing animal and so yeah yeah but giant there's something about the giant ones i don't know okay well we could we could talk about every animal <sighs> mythical or yeah, real or extinct <laughs> sure. but uh it's been so much fun talking to you father you Christian. too mary rosa <laughs> Thank you so much for asking me to do this. It's been fabulous. Absolutely. Um, and are you, I don't know, are you like a, on Twitter or anything like that? No, no. Probably good. I, I'm not on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I keep my Facebook uh, limited to people I know in All person. Right. <laughs> and so. Um, <laughs> 
if people want to contact you, they can pray for you or they, they can, can pray for you know, me. tell their guardian angel um, to send your guardian angel message. I, I do have a book coming out next year. Oh, nice. On, on uh, some of the stuff we're talking about today. It's, it's, it's called Walk the Line, a rock lover's primer for discerning orthodoxy. And so that will be out in 2023 by New City Press. And uh, so uh, I'm editing that book. There are multiple contributors. Um, so that I'm, I'm just going to take this last moment to plug. Hope you don't mind me sending out no, a plug. No, please. That actually <laughs> sounds really interesting. And yeah, we'll have to talk about who else is contributing because they might be really interesting guests to talk to as well. We'll do that. Okay. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Yep, uh, thank you, Mary Rose. Bye-bye. Very cool. Yeah. And you do this podcast. What's it going to be called? It's going to be called The Crab and the Cross. Um, and that kind of evokes a couple things. One, like we're Maryland, so crabs. Uh, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Maryland also has a very deep Catholic Jesuit history. Yeah. Um, you know, we where I am, St. Mary's City, is where the first Catholic colonists came in um, 1634. Oh, cool. Wow. Um, and they were all Jesuits. And there's this story of actually St. Francis Xavier, I think on his way, I forget if it's to India or Japan, but um, the, the sea is like really rough. And so he takes his cross off and he puts in the sea to like calm the storm. But then of course he loses his cross. And then when he lands, a, a crab actually brings it to him. Uh -huh. So I was like, this kind of fits like the Maryland, the Catholic, the, it's also like sort of weird, you know, I kind of like is this that. weird? the sublime the ridiculous it's all <laughs> well, that's uh, it's funny because that's one of my nicknames you know the crab or the cross crab really oh because you're my last name i guess that makes sense craw yeah because no it's not pronounced rob oh it's not no it's pronounced rab have i said it wrong my entire life probably most people <laughs> do i don't correct them so rab. It, it's rab Oops. so it's crab oh um, all right so sea rab crab sea rab yep. that's a good yep. that's good that's a good nickname <laughs> yes it is i wish we would have made that connection um i know yeah next time <laughs> next time